Okay, so this is where we left off when we were talking about MHC molecules on Monday. So we have class one, class two, and class three MHC molecules. And class one molecules are on the surface, right, cell surface glycoproteins of all nucleated cells. Class two are on the cell surface of antigen-presenting cells. And then class three is basically everything else. So those CD4 positive T cells, the T helper cells, are going to recognize antigens bound into MHC class two molecules. And the CD8, those cytotoxic T cells, are going to recognize foreign antigens bound to cell class 1 MHC molecules. Right, we had that picture. We talked about common features. We talked about a little bit of the genes or the, the, the genes and the DNA sequence and how we're not really MHCologists, so we don't care so much about this part, except for the fact that the class 1s, the class 2s, and class 3s reside in very specific places in the DNA, and the H2 complex in the mouse is very similar to the HLA complex in humans. And this is where we left off. Right? We were talking about the protein itself. So the class 1 molecule is a, a heterodimer. It's two chains, a 44,000 molecular weight heavy chain, just called the alpha chain. Right? We're just using Greek nomenclature. And it's encoded in the class 1 region in humans, HLA in the A, the B, or the C region. And then there's also another molecule that's not MHC encoded, beta-2 macroglobulin, and it's going to associate with the, the, with the alpha chain. And the alpha chain is the more important chain because it has three domains. It has a peptide binding region, an immunoglobulin-like region, makes it MHC molecules part of the immunoglobulin supergene family, and it has a transmembrane region. Right? And this is where we left off. So beta-2 macroglobulin is here to give some sort of stability to the alpha chain. Right? So here's the alpha-1, alpha-2 domain is the peptide binding cleft. This is where that peptide, remember when we said these MHC molecules are going to present peptides? This is where the, prep, the peptide is going to re reside. The alpha-3 domain, the immunoglobulin domain, Though the alpha-3 is the immunoglobulin fold domain that makes it part of the immunoglobulin supergene family, as it turns out is beta-2 macroglobulin. And the alpha chain contains the transmembrane domain and the cytoplasmic domain. All right, and this is a ribbon diagram to give a better feel for what the molecule looks like. All right, so we should really start talking about Right, that peptide binding region. That peptide binding region is clearly the most important part of the molecule, okay? Because the rest of the molecule is just that scaffolding, right? It's just the ability of the rest of the molecule to project that peptide out into the environment. So either a cytotoxic T cell or a T, well, not so much for class one, right? So that cytotoxic T cell via its T cell receptor is going to be able to recognize that peptide and be able to respond to it. So the alpha-1, alpha-2 domains interact to form a platform of eight anti-parallel beta strands supported by two parallel strands of alpha helices, right? Beta sheets, alpha helices, these are all substructures of proteins themselves, okay? So if you look at the molecule itself, or if you look at that peptide binding domain, Right? We're sort of looking straight down at it. So this is the floor 
of the domain, and these are the, the, the beta-pleated sheets on the bottom of the molecule, and then the, alpha helic the alpha helical structure sort of forms the side of this, right? So if you look back at this picture, now, right, the alpha hel now we're looking sort of this way too, so this gives you the, the cartoon representation of the beta-pleated sheets, the floor of the groove, and then the alpha helices sort of form the edge of, of, the, of the cleft itself, and then here you can see a better sort of representation of the alpha helices and the beta-pleated sheet, so it's the flat bottom and the alpha helices on the side. So the cleft that's formed there <clears throat> is going to support right, an 8 to 10 amino acid fragment of a protein processed antigen. So we've talked about this before. Right? If this is our cell and it's, been and it's been attacked by the virus, there'll be lots of viral proteins that are going to be synthesized inside the cell as that virus takes over the cell and it basically takes the entire machinery of the cell from making cellular proteins to now almost exclusively making viral proteins. As these proteins are broken up, some of these proteins are going to be recycled through sort of regular protein recycling machinery. We'll talk specifically about this when we talk about antigen processing on Friday. Right? So as these proteins are processed, some of these proteins are going to be broken down into peptides, and it's on the surface. Well, I'm not going to make it look like that, right? And it's on the surface that these peptides are going to associate with that MHC class 1 molecule. And when that cytotoxic T cell is able to read the information in that peptide via the T cell receptor, then that cytotoxic T cell is going to, be, is going to get permission to destroy that cell. So that peptide that's there right, is about 8 to 10 amino acids. So remember, we said that an epitope, eh, maybe anywhere from 2 to 3 to 4 amino acids, when we talked about structures of epitopes and what makes a, a pretty good epitope. So really, what are we looking at? We're looking at maybe 2 or 3 epitopes that that T cell receptor is going to have to be able to recognize. So the same way that an antibody molecule is going to be able to re recognize specific epitopes, the T cell receptor is going to recognize specific epitopes, and we're talking about the T cell receptor on Monday. So the cleft that's formed right, is going to present that peptide to the outside world. When we talked about these MHC molecules being the most mutable genes that we know in mammals, this is where those mutations are going to come in, right? So all those mutations are going to be in that alpha-1 and alpha-2 region where those polymorphisms or the alleles themselves are going to create variation in the cleft. Right? We need variation to be created in here so that we can bind most any peptide that we need to be able to bind so that we can present that peptide to the outside world. Okay? So when you think about either MHC class 1 or MHC class 2, you know, I like to sort of think about that peptide binding cleft as just being a landing place for those peptides. 
So think about this peptide binding cleft. And I think if I go back here, we can get a better sort of feel for it. Eh, I think if I go here. So think about this peptide binding area, this alpha-1, alpha-2 domain on the MHC class 1 molecule. Think about it as a hot dog bun. All right? If we had a good baseball team in this town, we might be starting the World Series. Well, we wouldn't be starting it here. We'd be starting it in St. Louis anyway. But by the time the, right, the, the, the series would have gotten back here, you're going down the Yorkie Way, there's everybody, you're walking down, and everybody's, you know, take a bun, you know, buy me a hot dog, or buy a hot dog, right? So you have the bun here, and the bun doesn't really matter. Perhaps you like Pepperidge Farm buns. Perhaps you like Wonder Bread buns, right? You can buy those buns. Some of them are flat on the bottom. Some of them are more round. It really doesn't matter because the bun's not important, right? When you go down Yorkie Way or you're at a baseball game or a football game, you don't tell the guy selling hot dogs, I don't want the hot dog. Just give me the bun. Put a little mustard in it. I'll just have the bun, right? The most important part is what's going inside the bun, okay? So, Clearly, a hot dog bun's going to have a hot dog in it. But, as you're walking down Yorkie Way, as you're walking wherever you're walking, it doesn't have to have a hot dog in it. It could have a sausage in it. It could have, right, if you go to Philadelphia, it could have peppers and steak and peppers inside. If it was more in the springtime, you could perhaps have a $15 one and put some lobster salad inside your bun. Right? So the bun doesn't really matter. It's what's going to be inside the bun. Right? So hot dog, bratwurst, sausage, steak, pepper, you know, whatever you're going to put inside that bun is the most important thing. So the most important thing here is getting that peptide inside that part of the molecule so that we can express it to the outside world. And that's what that alpha-1, alpha-2 is going to do for us. And that's what, right, this beta, this alpha helix on this side, this alpha helices on this side is going to come up. It's going to be able to surround, whoops, it's going to be able to surround that peptide, right, that, that, you know, that short little peptide fragment right inside here and present it to the outside world. So really, this alpha-1, alpha-2, right? all this is here just to present it to the outside world. All this is here is to be able to surround that peptide. And that peptide that's sitting out here is, right, is sort of basically the business end of this MHC molecule. So when you're thinking about these MHC molecules, and you're thinking about the generic sort of part of this hot dog bun, for, right, for lack of a better visual, Okay, so each MHC molecule is going to contain only one peptide binding site. Right? So there's only one site at that alpha-1, alpha-2 domain, right? and it's going to be able to bind only one peptide at a time. Okay, so this MHC molecule is only going to be able to present this peptide at any one point in time, right? But because this is a regular sort of cell surface protein, there could be up to a thousand different molecules on the surface. 
Right? That's not uncommon for any cell surface protein. There are probably hundreds and thousands of the same receptor molecules on the surface or hundreds or thousands of the same sort of pores or channels on the surface of a cell. So even though right, we're going to present this one peptide here, we have the ability, let's say, to, to present a thousand different peptides. Right? I'm not trying to say Right? That it's, this is the piece that's always going to be presented. I'm just saying, randomly, as these proteins are recycled, right? And we're chopping off this piece, and we're chopping up this protein, and we're chopping up this, and we're getting that, and we're getting that, or we're chopping up this one, and we're getting this one, we're getting this one, we're getting this one. So that same MHC molecule is going to present all of these peptides, right? All of these individual fragments. So that means at any one point in time, Right? We have all these MHC class 1 molecules on the surface, but we have the ability to present an unlimited amount of peptides. Right? 14, I can't make a thousand of those things. So even though we have that one MHC class 1 molecule, we can prevent, we can pre prevent, we can present thousands of different peptides at any one point in time to be able to get the attention Right, of up to a thousand different cytotoxic T cells. All we're looking for, all we're looking for is one. We're just looking for one cell to kill us. That's all we care about. We're just looking for one. You know, if two or three decide they want to gang up and kill us, that's fine. But as long as we are able to signal at least one cell based on Right? These epitopes that are going to be presented so that, so that this T cell receptor is going to be able to recognize it, that's all we're looking for. Okay. So even though we're going to have that one peptide, we have a thousand different chances to present peptides to the outside world. Right. So if you look at the gene structure, right? classic protein, classic gene. It's got introns, it's got exons. Right? Six separate exons encode each domain of the class I molecule. It, too, has a signal peptide, just like any protein that's destined right, to be taken to the endoplasmic reticulum has right, a leader sequence. The signal peptide is going to be cleaved off later on. Right? So here's the alpha-1 domain, here's the alpha-2, alpha-3, transmembrane, and the cytoplasmic domain. So it's a standard protein. Again, remember, you're getting every MHC molecule that your mom had, and you're getting every MHC molecule that your dad had. Your alleles are going to be chosen. Those mutations are going to make them your own MHC class 1 molecules. But we're bringing all that information over in the MHC uh, place in the DNA. So MHC class 1 molecules. Right? They're going to bind self-peptides, whatever that self-peptide is, or they're not going to bind anything if you're looking at that other sort of hypothesis as to how we're going to be able to leave cells alone, or viral peptides or perhaps some transformed, some tumorigenic uh, peptides that are there. Any given MHC molecule can bind to numerous peptides. Right? It's not like the specificity of the antibody molecule. Right? It doesn't matter what sort of combination this peptide takes, 
it's going to be able to reside inside that peptide binding cleft of the MHC class 1 molecule, right? It's going to be the specificity of the T cell receptor and also, right, just the ability to present multiple epitopes from these Right? from these peptides, from these proteins that are inside, that's where the specificity is going to come from. Okay. So the, the, the idea is to, is to be able to use the specificity of the T cell receptor. And as it turns out, that alpha-3 domain, right, that immunoglobulin fold on the class 1 molecule, that may be the region that's going to be recognized by the CD8 molecule. Okay. You said that cytotoxic T cells are also CD8 positive T cells. So an interaction that needs to take place is going to be between the T cell receptor of the cytotoxic T cell and the CD8 molecule. So the CD8 molecule has some sort of interaction, has some sort of, of, uh, of, in, of, some sort of help well, not really help, but it needs to be able to recognize. And maybe that's how the T cell is going to be able to recognize an MHC class 1 molecule. Right? You can probably realize that one of the slides is going to say when T helper cells interact with the MHC class 2, it's going to be CD4 that's going to interact with the MHC class 2 molecule. Right? So that might be how the T cell knows how to recognize a class 1 or a class 2 molecule. Okay, so we can leave the delicatessen and make our way to talking about MHC class 2 molecules. Right? So, class 2. Right? We knew about MHC, three mo molecules, class 1. Oh, wait, did I go back? To, oh, I went back to the same one. Uh, okay, hold on. Sorry. There it is. Okay. So, class 2 molecules. So what do we know about class 2? What we know about class 2 molecules is they're almost identical to class 1 molecules. Right? With this one very big difference. Right? It also has two genes, two chains, so it's a heterodimer. Right? Both of these genes are encoded in the MHC and the D region in the class 2 region. Like class 1, they are cell surface glycoproteins. The two chains, 33,000 alpha chain, a 28,000 molecular weight beta chain. Again, this alpha chain has nothing to do with an MHC class 1 alpha chain. It has nothing to do with, right, with the alpha heavy chain. This is just sort of Greek nomenclature again. Right? So we have an alpha chain and a beta chain. It's a heterodimer. And we also have, just like before, three domains. We have the peptide binding region, the immunoglobulin-like region, and the transmembrane region and the cytoplasmic region. The only difference here is that before the peptide binding domain for the class 1 molecule was the alpha 1, alpha 2 domain. Here, the peptide binding region is alpha 1, beta 1 before the immunoglobulin-like domain was the alpha-3 domain. Here, the immunoglobulin-like domain is the alpha-2, beta-2 domain. And why does it look that way? It looks that way because it's two chains. So when you look at this molecule, or you look at these molecules, it's almost unbelievable that they can look this way. 
So this peptide binding cleft in the alpha-1, I mean in the class-1 molecule, right, is all encoded in the alpha chain, but over here, right, they look like two ducks looking at each other, right, we have the alpha-1 domain that has one part of the alpha helices and some of the beta-pleated sheets of the, of, the, of, the, of the floor structure. And in the beta-2 domain, we have the other half of the alpha helices and the other half of those beta-pleated sheets. Right? These immunoglobulin-like regions are going to interact with each other and probably give stability to the molecule. And we have that transmembrane domain. Right? So, right, you look at this sort of picture and you're thinking, evolutionarily speaking, you know, what, what did we start with? Did we start with just this piece and then this piece duplicated and we made this piece or did we start with this piece, right? And there was some sort of, of a genetic event where we duplicated this piece, right? It's hard to sort of know, right? We have this beta-2 macroglobulin. We're going to interact here with the alpha-3 domain. Here we have alpha-2 and beta-2 interacting with each other to give stability to the molecule. Was, did we start out with this first immunoglobulin fold domain itself, right? When we talked about the immunoglobulin supergene family, we said that all of those proteins are involved with intracellular communication. So is this the primordial part of the molecule? And it duplicated to form this, and then it mutated. Who knows, right? We have really no idea because we don't know what that original animal was that contained this gene product. If you go back, evolutionarily speaking, you can find MHC molecules, again, probably to bony fish. There are molecules that are very MHC-like in invertebrates, but they're only in advanced invertebrates. There's only one or two invertebrates that even have anything that you might think could be an MHC system. So, again, we have a lot of evolutionary questions. We have a lot of historical questions. Where did these molecules come from? What, what actions did they subserve before they became our MHC? And when I mean our, I mean all our eukaryotic brethren, you know, before they became our MHC molecules. We really don't know. But just looking at this picture, right, it's kind of unbelievable to see that these two molecules can basically have the same exact molecular or, or protein sort of substructures at the tip of their, of their molecules out there. So just like before, right, only now we're saying alpha-1, beta-1 interact to form that platform of eight anti-parallel beta strands, right? And it's going to support two parallel strands of alpha helices. So the same thing is taking place. The difference here is the cleft that's formed, right? That binding cleft can support a little bit bigger peptide fragment. So before it was, you know, 8 to 10. Now it's 13 to 18, right? Slightly longer than the class one molecule. And just like in the class one molecules where we were getting mutations in the alpha one, alpha two domain, right, to sort of change the structure of that cleft so we could be able to bind any peptide that might be there here, right, those mutations are in the alpha one, alpha, uh, alpha one, beta one region where the polymorphisms are. And that's going to create variation in the cleft that way. There's so much similarity in these two molecules or in these two protein domains that if you superimpose them on top of each other, right, 
it's almost hard to tell them apart. The alpha helices line up almost exactly, right? Here's the MHC class two. The alpha helical structure itself goes out a little bit longer. That's why we can hold more peptide, right? But you can almost superimpose. So you look at the beta strands, and the beta strands are almost right on top of each other, right? So you can see just how similar these two molecules are in that protein substructure. So that substructure that's being formed by a single protein in the MHC class one molecule is an exact, is a, it's not a mirror, it's almost an exact copy of the fact that the alpha one and the beta one domain of the MHC class two molecule is forming the same exact cleft, if not a little bit bigger. This is one of the miracles of, of, of science or of evolution, let's say. So, if we're looking down at the molecule, right, here we have a space-filling molecule, so we're looking down from the top of the molecule. So this is the MAC class one. This is probably the alpha three domain. Here's alpha one, here's alpha two. Here's the peptide, right? Sort of sitting right in there, sitting right inside the bun, right? A hot dog on this side and perhaps some steak on this side, right? So that the class two, the, the, the T cell receptor is gonna come down and recognize here that CD8 cell, that CD8 protein is gonna be able to interact with the alpha three domain. It's a little bit bigger, but it's basically the same exact thing over here. So here's alpha 1, beta 1. Maybe we're looking over here at, right, at uh, beta 2. But here's a longer peptide. So over here, we're looking at maybe, you know, 1, 2, 3 epitopes, let's say. Over here, we can be looking at maybe 4, 5, 6 different epitopes of this peptide that's being presented. Okay? So just like we talked about before, Here's our antigen presenting cell. Here's the bacteria that it just right, phagocytosed. We're going to take peptides that are being generated from breaking down the proteins inside the phagolysosome. We're going to put them out here on this MHC class two molecule now. Right? Can be one of PEP, a whole bunch of different peptides. Here we're going to have the AT cell receptor. Here this T cell receptor is right, part of the T helper cell. This peptide that's formed, this T helper cell is going to release cytokines. We could stimulate phagocytes, macrophages in the area to phagocytose more, to be able to clear up right, all the invaders that are out there. This T helper cell is going to be able to stimulate B cells. right? so that this antigen receptor on its surface right, is going to turn into right, IgG molecules now because we know how that happens, right? We're going to go from that, what was the original IgM, to making high affinity IgG molecules now so that those molecules can go out, bind to this invader so that this antigen presenting cell can recognize it easier, right? And have a more robust immune response. So this is, right, this is the basics that we're looking at. Here we're uniting this very innate, very general aspect of the immune response, right, just sort of general phagocytosis with the more specific part of the immune system, and now we're getting both T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes involved with recognition and destruction of this invader. So that's what these MHC class two molecules are all about.
And again, if you look at right, where most of the mutations are going to take place up here, right? so these are amino acids in this one particular you know, sort of experiment that was done. So over here, this doesn't mean much, having this mutation over here. But you can see most of these mutations right, are either in these beta-pleated sheets or these alpha helical regions. And we're doing that to make as many different, right? So before we were changing around the CD3, CD1, CDR1, CDR2, CDR3 region of the antibody molecule. Now we're basically changing, right, the ability of that peptide cleft to move and to be different shapes so that we can bind most any peptide that we're going to randomly generate and put in that peptide binding cleft. And if there came a point in time where a specific peptide wasn't able to fit inside there, we would be at a competitive disadvantage. Because then we couldn't alert the immune system that we were being taken over by a virus. And this virus would have free reign inside the body. The immune system would be powerless to stop it because the immune system couldn't recognize it, right? So we need to have that cleft constantly, right, changing on all these individual MHC molecules to be able to fit inside any peptide that we may randomly generate as we're digesting either viral proteins or invader proteins if we're talking about an MHC class 2 molecule. Okay. So, just like before, right, it's going to be similar to class 1. It's a little bit different. Class 2 is a little bit different. Right? Five exons each domain of the beta chain, but there are only four exons for the alpha chain. So it's a little bit different, but same signal peptide, same exon, intron, exon, same sort of regular gene, right? Here's the beta 1, the beta 2, transmembrane domains. Here's alpha 1, alpha 2, right? So you can sort of see that there are only four exons here, right? So we're going to bet alpha 1, alpha 2, and the rest of the molecule is basically in this other exon out here, right? The rest of them are not like this, right? It's going to be outside over there. So very similar. So evolutionarily speaking, they are very similar to each other. So what does this do for us? Right? Why are these polymorphisms there? Why do we have right, a basically unlimited amount of MHC variation? We have an unlimited amount of MHC variation for the same reason that we needed an unlimited amount of variation for antibody molecules. Right? Antibody molecules and T cell receptors, right? We're getting real close now to talking about T cell receptors. So, right, they're all generated by random gene rearrangements, right? We have all those pieces of V's and J's, so they're going to come in. MHC diversity is going to be generated by having those multiple alleles, right, by polymorphisms. And current estimates say that there are about 10 alleles of each locus in the human and, and, and the mouse. Right. So, if you do the math for the mouse, right, and then we can do it all over, right? So, for each individual, so if there's 100K, 100IA alpha, let's say, so we're talking about class 1 and class 2, right, IA beta, IE, right, the class 2 molecules, and then the D of the class 2, that puts us to about, right, 100 times 100 times 100 times, right, that's a lot of hundreds, that puts us to about, 10 to the 12th different MHC molecules. 
That's where the diversity is coming from. And, right, this is just for looking at the, the, the gene products themselves, just for looking at the proteins themselves. This doesn't even take into consideration right, changes in those mutations that are going to take place. So if you remember, antibodies were anywhere from 10 to the 9th to 10 to the 11th, right? Anywhere from a billion to 10 billion different antibody molecules. Now we're talking about 10 to the 12th, we're talking about a trillion different MHC molecules that we could potentially generate. To be able to, right, present any epitope that we may come into contact with, we need, the, we need the ability for that MHC molecule to be interchangeable. If it could only present a hundred different peptides, we're not even sitting here. Right? The viruses would have won. The bacteria would have won. Right? This planet would look a whole lot different without our smokestacks and smartphones and everything on it, right? Because we wouldn't even have been here long enough to do that. We being eukaryotes, we being mammals. We would have lost that battle a long time ago. We're still, we're still carrying out that battle. Right? We've, been, uh, we've been battling on this planet for half a billion years. There's some data to suggest now Right, that all the microbes that are inside our gut, all those microbes that are on our skin, some of them there have turned, some of them help us. Right? So we have a bunch, of, we have a bunch of, of help from some prokaryotes that are out there. But in general, right, this is the front line to, to combat a virus. We'll talk about different cytokines that are available and different factors that are available to help us in the fight for the viruses. But this is what we're the most afraid of. Yeah, we've come to some sort of right, detente with certain bacterial species. They help us. But this is, this is where we really need the help, right, with the viruses. Because they're not out long enough for the other aspects of the immune system to be able to recognize them. Now, clearly, Right? An antigen-presenting cell could occasionally engulf a dead cell that may have viruses inside. So, class II molecules could also be involved with presenting viral peptides. Right? Anything that, that is able to be recognized, engulfed, and destroyed by those phagocytes, by the antigen-presenting cells, the dendritic cells. So we can actually use T helper cells to attack viruses as well, but it's basically the class one molecules. And we need to have that many different MHC molecules, I mean, those many different binding sites, so we can be able to respond to most any attack that takes place. So when you think about right, the MHC, the MHC domain, right, it occupies the largest chunk of DNA for any system that we know about in, in our cells. Okay? It's about 4,000 kilobytes. It is a whopping amount of DNA. If you think about it, the entire E. coli genome, right, the entire amount of DNA to make a living organism to make a living, breathing, moving, I don't want to say thinking, right? To make a, a living thing, 
takes 4,500 kilobase. We have just that much of DNA wrapped up in the MHC molecules. That's how important the MHC is to us, right? You're going to take 290, you're going to learn about fitness, you're going to learn about trade-offs, right? A lot of life science people say, oh, why do we have to take 290, right? Don't think about 290, about, you know, counting wolves out in the field or however they present, right? However the ecology people present 290, right? Think about other things. When they talk about, right, the amount of energy that you need, this is an enormous amount of energy, right? But that's an enormous amount of space, enormous amount of of cleanup, enormous amount of sort of general day-to-day -day housekeeping that the DNA is going to go through to be able to keep the MHC molecule there. Right? It's, it's incredibly important for us. When you think about the size of the MHC and the ability to be able to have all these different sort of molecules, that's what makes transplantation so difficult. Right? Because the other thing that we'll talk about is, right, this cytotoxic T cell is going to be able to use this T cell receptor and it's going to be able to recognize, and I'm trying to make this cell a little bit different, <laughs> it's going to be able to recognize a different MHC molecule. So these cytotoxic T cells are going to be involved in destroying transplanted tissues as well. And when we talk about transplantation, when we talk about MHC restriction, right, remember I said that's what makes you, you, your MHC class 1 molecules. My T cell receptors are going to be able to recognize, or my cytotoxic T cells are going to be able to recognize your cells as being foreign right, and be able to destroy them. When you hear about transplantation, when you hear about right, people going out and being tissue typed, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for right, sort of similar MHC molecules that the recipient's immune system will leave alone. Right? When we talk about T cells and talk about T cell receptors, we'll get into more of that in detail. So, what else do we know about the MHC? Well, the other thing we know is we have all that other stuff in class three areas, right? So there are about 36 genes very diverse in structure and function inside. Right? They're not really related. They're just sort of clumped together. Right? I said some complement molecules. Right? Some cytokines sit in there. And also the machinery that's a part of recycling these peptides are also encoded in the MHC, in the MHC class 3. Uh, domain of the DNA. And when we talk about antigen processing on Friday, we will talk specifically about that machinery right, that's there that is turning on and turning those proteins into peptides. <coughs> there is another very similar molecule that sits on the surface of our cells, and it's very structurally related to MHC class 1 and MHC class 2. Right? It's functionally similar to both class 1 and class 2, only instead of presenting proteins on the surface, it's going to present lipids on the surface. Okay? We are covering all of our bases here. So, MHC class 1, MHC class 2 are presenting proteins and glycoproteins perhaps. 
CD1 molecules are presenting different lipid molecules. There are a whole bunch of lipids, a whole bunch of different fatty acids that we don't synthesize, right? that we don't have. So if those lipids, right, we're going to present proteins with MHC class 2 molecules, and we're going to present lipids with CD1 molecules. We're covering our bases. Right? We're not going to give this organism any sort of heads up or foot up here. Right? Proteins, lipids. If a T cell is able to recognize that as being a foreign lipid, same thing is going to be able to take place. We're not just constricting us ourselves down to proteins. It's a heterodimer. The binding room is, slight, is significantly larger than both class 1 and class 2 molecules. There are about five different subsets of CD1 molecules. So when you look at the CD1, here's beta 2 macroglobulin again. Here's the alpha 1, alpha 2, alpha 3. So it's very MHC class 1-like in terms of its protein structure but it's very MHC class 2-like in the fact that its peptide binding area is a lot bigger. Right? Lipids are a little bulkier, so it needs more sort of manipulation to be able to corral those lipids and present them to the outside world. But that's why it's very much MHC class 1-like and very much MHC class 2-like. In fact, if you superimpose an MHC class 1, an MHC class 2, and a CD1 molecule, and you look at the, the peptide binding, well, I don't, sorry, I said peptide. If you look at the binding cleft now, right, because now it's either, a, it's now either a lipid binding cleft or a protein binding cleft, again, very superimposable, right? It's sort of a little bit stretched out up here if you're looking at CD1, but in general, they are superimposable on top of each other. So now we have a question, right? Well, you know, how, where did this come from? Did an MHC class 1 molecule have some sort of uh, mutation up here that allowed the cleft to get bigger? Did we start with this, and we got smaller, and blah, you get the idea, right? Now CD1 molecules are even more fuel to the evolutionary fire as to where these molecules came from, right? They're found primarily on dendritic cells and other antigen-presenting cells, including B cells. So again, that makes them more MHC class 1-like because they are presenting, oh no, sorry, that makes them more MHC class 2-like, right? Because as those, as those invaders are engulfed, now we're presenting peptides and lipids to be able to direct the attention of these T helper cells to this invader. It's all drawn back to getting to this invader. So what do we, what do we get from our MHC molecules, right? What we get is we get the ability to protect ourselves, but we also get a way in which an invader can right, use it against us. Right? It appears that certain diseases are going to be associated with particular MHC alleles. So if you are unfortunate to be born with one of these alleles because of your distant past, right? so over the course of of human evolutionary time over the course of the last 100,000 or so years, right, those mutations, those different alleles have been built up in different populations. 
right? Just like all other, right, sort of investigations of DNA. Right? So a bunch of different hypotheses as to why where susceptibility issues lie. So susceptibility may reflect the role of this particular allele, right, in some sort of responsiveness or non-responsiveness to the, to the pathogen itself, right? The pathogen, right, is using the ability of this allele to hide itself. So this allele is allowing, right, the pathogen not to be revealed. Various MHC alleles may have certain binding sites for viruses, bacteria, or their products themselves. Right? So over evolutionary time, they've learned to use these MHC alleles. Well, they haven't learned it, right? They've, natural selection has brought about the ability of these alleles to provide certain things that are going to be used by these, by these invaders. So the classic example right, of, of susceptibility in MHC is right, Marquette's disease. Right? Marquette's disease is a chicken lymphoma, right? It's a chicken tumor. Not that it's afraid to be a tumor, but it's a tumor of chickens themselves. So, if you're a chicken and you happen to be born and you express the B19 allele, you're going to be very susceptible to that virus, to Marquette's disease. If you're a chicken that has the B29 allele, then you're not going to be susceptible to Marquette's disease. So, let's bet. Let's do a, 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 an experimental bet. How many people would bet that Mr. Purdue's chicken are B19 positive? I would suggest zero of his chickens are B, well, I don't mean his personal chicken, but zero of those chickens are B19 positive. Because right? the way, I don't want to get into the ethics of how they raise chickens and they're all close to each other and they don't sit down, right? All those, you read all those things about right, how bad chickens have it. So you could imagine if there was a viral outbreak in those chicken, would it be a chicken coop? I think of a chicken coop like maybe 10 or 12 chickens, right? These are buildings that could be right, thousands of feet long. So in this chicken building, if, that vi if Marquette's virus ever got in there, every chicken right, would basically die from cancer. So I'm sure that all those chickens right, carry the B29 allele and not the B19 allele. They've all been bred that way. A lot of diseases in people, humans express an HLA B27, right? a type of inflammatory arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. Right? Those people are more susceptible to ankylosing spondylitis if you carry the B27 mutation. In fact, right, there are a whole bunch of, right, most of these are autoimmune diseases. Right? Here's diabetes, here's multiple sclerosis, right? here's different arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, right? all sorts of different autoimmune diseases carrying these different alleles and you have that much of a relative risk of developing that autoimmune disease, right, based on the MHC alleles themselves, okay? So, this high level of MHC polymorphism has an advantage, right, providing a broad range of antibody, of, of, of antigen-presenting MHC molecules. Right? That's why we need that diversity, so that we can present any sort of a peptide at any one point in time. I would e also argue right, that that's why we have multiple CD1 molecules, so that we can present a whole bunch of different lipids at any one point in time. 
We're going to cover all of our bases by getting lots and lots of peptides and lots and lots of lipids. There is a real-world example of this, right? Some members of a population will be able to respond to any one of a large number of pathogens. Now, I don't want to upset anybody in the room, but nature couldn't give a hoot about any one of us. Right? Nature doesn't care about me, nature doesn't care about you, and by you I mean you. Right? Nature doesn't care about us as individuals. It cares about us as a population. So as long as there's two individuals of a population left, they got to be the right individuals, right? We all know Adam and Eve, right? So as long as there are two members of a population left, nature will have done its job. So you as an individual, we don't care about. If you got B27 and you're getting ankylosing spondylitis, so what? There's plenty more of you where you came from. I'm talking about you as members of an individual population. But there will be some of us that don't have right, the ability to get HLA spondylitis. It came to a fact when they were looking at cheetahs. Right? They were doing breeding programs in the 1980s. And they were looking at cheetahs themselves. Right? Oh, we have a nice picture of cheetahs. Right? So 1985, they want to take cheetahs and they decide, we're not going to get cheetahs from the wild anymore. Right? Zoos don't do that anymore. We're going to breed our cheetahs. So a zoo in South Africa decided to do a workup on all their cheetahs. They came to find out that all their cheetahs were related to each other when it came to their MHC molecules. So, the, so this zoo in South Africa said, okay, well, I guess we can't breed our own cheetahs. So let's call a zoo in Seattle. And let's call a zoo in Oregon. And let's call a zoo in Paris. And maybe we can exchange cheetahs. So. They call all these zoos, and all these zoo people do their work up on all their cheetahs, and guess what? They're all related to the South African cheetahs. So then they decide, okay, well, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe a long time ago, somebody got this cheetah, and, you know, it bred, and all these zoo cheetahs are all related to each other. So what do we need to do? We, don't, we hate to do it, but we're going into the wild. We're going to capture some cheetahs. They go in. They captured the cheetahs. You know the answer. They're all related to each other. Every cheetah in the world is related to each other. If you do the genetics, something happened 100,000 years ago to those poor cheetahs. 100,000 years ago, there was uh, some wiped out a lot of cheetahs, and a bottleneck took place. And now every cheetah in the world is related to every other cheetah in the world. If there was ever a cheetah virus, and there was a cheetah virus in Oregon in 1985, that killed every cheetah in an Oregon zoo because of this MHC lack of diversity. So this is a real-world example. We will talk about antigen processing on Friday.